Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey everyone, this is Jeremy. Before we get started on today's show, I just wanted to take a few moments of your time to invite you to become a sustaining member of this program of Intercepted. We have just passed our 200th guest. That is more than 200 individual people have been guests on this show since we started days after Donald Trump was inaugurated. People from across the world and across this country talking about vital issues around war, uh imperialism, aggression, racism, the war against LGBTQ people the war against the environment we try to bring you every week on this program voices that you aren't going to hear anywhere else and if you support this if you want to become a part of this if you want to be closer to this journalism we encourage you to become a sustaining member of intercepted when you become a member of this program you know that the money that you contribute is going straight into producing journalism and giving voice to people that wouldn't otherwise have it you can donate any amount to this program. You can do it monthly, you can do it as a one-time donation. We are not supported by ads. We have no corporate sponsors. We are not accountable to shareholders. We are accountable to the people who read the intercept and who listen to this program. This is a totally different model where listeners can support the journalism that they value, where they can become a part of building an independent news organization. The stakes are very high right now with Donald Trump in power. There are more than 20 Democrats running to try to unseat him. We are committed to holding all those in power or who seek power accountable. We have no sacred cows here on Intercepted. All together with the people that produce this show, with the incredible team of journalists that write for the Intercept, with our editors and our support staff, we are dedicated to making this show a valuable part of your media diet with actionable information, information you can take and translate into action that you want to take in your life. Whether it's reporting as we're going to do on today's show about the increased threats from the Trump administration toward Iran or it's the dirty dealings of Eric Prince who has found a great sponsor now in Donald Trump in his administration this show is going to cut through all of the madness and try to bring you information that is vital if you appreciate what we do here on intercepted and you want to become closer to the journalism you want to become part of building this experiment that we've been doing for the past 2 plus years log on to the intercept.com/join and become a sustaining member of this program. Thank you very much. On with the show. Without our membership base, uh we would have a very very difficult nigh impossible task of bringing you the programming that you enjoy. There's a lot of you out there now that that haven't called in and right now is the perfect chance. Call now. You know what's going to happen, Jeremy? Let me tell you what's going to happen. You're not going to get any money if you let this happen. Intercepted. That's fake news. These people are bad people. They don't work. They don't work and they don't come close to working. These people are stone cold crazy. Well, look, frankly, the way the show is going now and you look at Intercepted. 
Who knows how long that show's going to be on? It's a terrible show. The phones are getting active again. We, we really do appreciate it. Just please help us pay for this wonderful programming that you enjoy. This is Intercepted. I'm Jeremy Scahill coming to you from the offices of The Intercept in New York City, and this is episode 92 of Intercepted. I think it's been clear for a year now from the time President Trump announced he was getting out of the Iran deal that we were going to return to sanctions and impose pressure uh, on the regime there. And it's had a very significant effect. Neoconservative warmongers love the USS Abraham Lincoln. Remember that moment back on May 1st, 2003, where George W. Bush landed on the Abraham Lincoln in a warplane. He was wearing his flight suit. Then he proceeded to declare the invasion and occupation of Iraq. Mission accomplished. Major combat operations in Iraq have ended. In the Battle of Iraq, the United States and our allies have prevailed. Sixteen years after that speech by Bush, Iraq remains in chaos and mired in bloodshed. There is a brutal war raging in neighboring Syria, Millions and millions of people remain displaced. It is a living nightmare, and it can be directly traced to the invasion of Iraq, the lies that were told, and this stunt that then-President Bush pulled on the Abraham Lincoln. And then 16 years later, almost to the day, Donald Trump's national security advisor, John Bolton, announced that the Abraham Lincoln Carrier Strike Group and a bomber task force were being deployed to, quote, send a clear and unmistakable message to the Iranian regime that any attack on the United States' interests or on those of our allies will be met with unrelenting force. Iran subsequently accused the Trump administration of waging psychological warfare. Acting Defense Secretary Patrick Shanahan said the deployment was made because of a, quote, credible threat by Iranian regime forces. But he offered no details. Axios is reporting the threat is based on information passed on from Israel. Over the past two plus years, the Trump administration has become increasingly populated by radical extremists with multi-decade records of agitating for the overthrow of the Iranian government. These are people like John Bolton and Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, who believe that the 1953 overthrow of Iran's democratically elected leader, Mohammad Mossadegh, and the subsequent rule of the Shah was the high point of Iranian civilization. Iran should be an oil field with a flag and an impoverished, disempowered population. Attention is focused once again on the Middle East, where events in Iran have taken a dramatic double twist. Forced to flee his palace in Tehran, the Shah and his queen arrive in Rome after an alleged attempt by the Imperial Guard to arrest Dr. Mossadegh and a refusal by the Shah to dissolve Parliament at Mossadegh's request. Now, with Donald Trump in power, a motley coalition has emerged involving Israel, the Saudis, Eric Prince, the Emiratis, members of the Trump family, all united in their goal to damage or destroy Iran. 
This is one of those issues that could explode in a moment based on a provocation or on outright lies. It is dangerous and it's incendiary. At the same time, Israel once again unleashed a deadly assault on Gaza over the weekend, killing at least 25 Palestinians, including two pregnant women and two children. Israel denies that it killed the women and blamed it on Hamas rockets. Four Israelis were also reported to have been killed. This recent round of killings began after Israeli forces reportedly shot and killed two Palestinian protesters, sparking lethal battles between Palestinians and Israeli military forces. On orders from Benjamin Netanyahu, fresh off his re-election, Israel bombed buildings and also used drones to fire a missile at a car it claimed was carrying a Hamas leader. While the Trump administration hammers away on the theoretical threat of a nuclear Iran, Israel has a full nuclear arsenal and the passionate backing of the Trump White House. This is perhaps one of the most dangerous situations we have seen in recent years in the broader Middle East region. Joining me now to discuss all of this is my colleague, Murtaza Hussein. He's a reporter for The Intercept. Maz, welcome back to Intercepted. Thank you for having me. What's going on in Iran right now? Is it the case that Bolton and Pompeo and others in the Trump administration actually want to go to war against Iran? Well, when you look at these situations, you have to understand that they're accomplished in stages. So the first stage, as you can see, is an attempt to degrade and ultimately cause the collapse of the Iran nuclear deal. I am announcing today that the United States will withdraw from the Iran nuclear deal. The second stage would be to build pressure on Iran economically. If it causes political divisions in Iran, all the better. We will be instituting the highest level of economic sanction. And then military conflict is something that happens later down the line. And you saw this previously with U.S. policy towards Iraq, which was preceded by decades of sanctions and other forms of pressure. I don't think the U.S. is looking for imminent war with Iran today, but it is setting the stage for that years down the line. And we're also in a very dangerous situation where there could be unintended escalations or confrontations between Iranian military and the U.S. And the people who are really suffering in the moment are the civilians of Iran. Today's action sends a critical message. The United States no longer makes empty threats. When I make promises, I keep them. What has the impact been of the sanctions on Iran specifically? So sanctions on Iran specifically target its oil sector to try to reduce oil exports to zero in the statements of U.S. administration officials. The problem is that the heavy sanctions on Iranian banks have made it difficult for a lot of things which should get into Iran to get there. Companies and foreign banks do not want to deal with Iranian institutions because they're afraid of incurring fines and other penalties from the U.S., we're still at the early stage of these sanctions. As you know, Iraqi sanctions led to the deaths of hundreds of thousands of civilians. We're not there yet with Iran. But if you talk to people in Iran, the situation there is getting more dire month by month. People are having difficulties affording meat. They're having difficulties obtaining uh, medical supplies, which are critical to life. If this continues for many more months, many more years, you're going to see a very devastating civilian impact comparable somewhat to what we saw in Iraq. I think it's no mistake or not unintentional that 
Bolton makes this announcement that the U.S. is deploying the USS Abraham Lincoln Carrier Strike Group and a bomber task force to Central Command, and as he said, to send a clear and unmistakable message to the Iranian regime that any attack on United States interests or on those of our allies will be met with unrelenting force. Of course, he says this in early May, and the Abraham Lincoln was actually the carrier that George W. Bush stood on in front of his mission accomplished banner in May of 2003. It seems like the symbolism is not coincidental. There's a distinct lack of irony in these officials. And John Bolton, of course, is a major official from that era as well. This deployment, as far as we know, was a routine deployment, but it's being characterized for political purposes by Bolton as a unique threatening measure against Iran. And again, that in itself is dangerous. It's ratcheting up the tension. In Iran, there are hardliners who are seeking degradation of relations with the U.S. and the outside world for their own reasons. These measures and this rhetoric is empowering those people, and it's leading to a situation where you could see a naval conflict between the U.S. and Iran, which leads to a cycle of unintended consequences, which could lead to a war or strikes against Iran in the near future. If they were to push forward to this, we know everything we know about Pompeo, Bolton, all that crew, but also we've now observed Trump for a couple of years. How would this be sold? Well, after the Iraq war, there's clearly not a great appetite in the U.S. public for an occupation of a foreign country in the long term. I think the way this war would be sold is something close to Gulf War I, very antiseptic from the U.S. standpoint, conflict, airstrikes, drone strikes, uh, cruise missile strikes against Iranian targets. What you'd see is a lot of death and destruction on the Iranian side, but less exposure to physical risk by Americans. And I think that the way that military technology is developing is that we're going to move towards more of these hands-off wars, hands-off on one side at least. So there'll be bombings of Iranian cities, of Iranian military targets, maybe energy-producing facilities, nuclear facilities. But you will not see Trump or anyone else talking about major escalations of U.S. forces in inside Iran. Maybe there'll be special forces raids, but it'll be a war which, to some degree, Americans will be able to ignore. That's the only way politically such an endeavor can be sold after the toxic events in Iraq. You know, what? one of the takeaways, I think, from this two and a half years of the Mueller-Russia investigation is that there was this ongoing conspiracy of people within the Trump administration or the Trump family, interlocutors for Trump and foreign governments like Eric Prince or George Nader, and then foreign powers like the Saudis or the Israelis or Emiratis, who all seem to be united in wanting that Iranian regime to be overthrown. I really see the present uh, behavior by the U.S. as a form of unfinished business from the 2003 Bush era. Now you have people like Bolton back in power. You have people like Eric Prince in the orbit of the Trump administration. Many of the same voices who were very much wanted to see confrontation happening over a decade ago, are now back near the helm of power. And all the same ideas and all the same ideologies and all the same desires for U.S. policy in the Middle East, they're back. And they have Trump. And I'm not saying that Trump himself is somebody who campaigned on a war with Iran, but in many ways, he's a cipher for these extremist elements in the United States. And with him, they see an open door to achieving the dreams that were unfulfilled many years ago. And the Obama era was sort of a obstruction to that, and things like the Iran nuclear deal need to be pulled apart in order to achieve their goals. But they're working on that in earnest now. And if we see a second Trump administration, 
I think that the odds of confrontation with Iran militarily are very high. The noted academic Juan Cole, who also is an expert on Middle East politics and and history, had a a recent piece where he was talking about how CNN's Fareed Zakaria did a story about John Bolton, in which Zakaria depicted Bolton as just a very conservative man who sees the world as full of menacing enemies. Bolton has been variously described as a neoconservative, a paleoconservative, a conservative hawk. In fact, he is simply a conservative in the oldest, most classical sense someone who has a dark view of humankind. I want you to respond to the following characterization uh, from Professor Juan Cole. He says, this picture of Bolton is a complete misreading. Bolton is a sadistic bully who wants to dominate people. He never got to be more than temporary UN ambassador under George W. Bush because he had mercilessly tortured his office staff. Bolton likes to hurt people who are weaker than he. He is not after Iran because he's afraid of it. He's after it because it is one of the last countries in the world still bucking the U.S. power architecture and which is too weak to resist an all-out assault. He wants to see flies walking on the Iranians' eyeballs and wants even their dogs to be fucked. Look, uh, Fareed Zakaria is somebody who's part of a certain establishment in D.C. where he may see John Bolton around or he's part of a certain polite social set, which includes the most powerful people in the United States. So he chooses not to speak frankly about who these people really are. And look, the United States has extremists like any country has extremists. John Bolton is an inveterate extremist. He makes no secret about his desire for war. The declared policy of the United States of America should be the overthrow of the Mullah's regime in Tehran. The only solution is to change the regime itself. And that's why before 2019, we here will celebrate in Tehran. Thank you very much. John Bolton is somebody who looked at the past 10 years of horror in Iraq and did not feel sated by that. He wants more war in the region. And I think uh, Professor Cole's characterizations are absolutely correct. And, you know, we shouldn't speak about these people in diplomatic language. They deserve to be spoken about as war criminals, as putative war criminals. They're not repentant or shy about who they are, and we shouldn't be shy about describing them as they are. What's happening right now in Israel with a newly emboldened Netanyahu and these ongoing attacks on the Palestinians? It's a very interesting situation because I feel that Netanyahu, despite his rhetoric, he does not want to invade Gaza again. He does not want to have a major war. He's someone who's very risk-averse. And this practice that they have periodically of, quote-unquote, mowing the lawn, which is a term that they use, conducting airstrikes, killing maybe a few dozen Palestinians, having rockets come back the other way in some number. This is something which is politically convenient. It allows him to posture as somebody tough without taking the political risks which would entail and the casualties which would entail a major conflict. And in the end, what happens is that Hamas and Netanyahu have a mutually beneficial relationship to some degree. It's much more beneficial with Netanyahu, but he is able to portray himself as somebody tough on security. And meanwhile, in the end, to achieve these ceasefires, some concessions have to be given in terms of uh, loosening restrictions on Gaza. On the other hand, you have the West Bank, where no concessions are given because there's no violence in the West Bank on a mass level. And the message ultimately sent is that armed resistance will give some sort of concession and they'll have to deal with you on equal terms in some sense. Whereas the Palestinians who have chosen a political solution with Israel, they have no outlet for concessions. They're repeatedly humiliated. There's not even the pretense that restrictions are going to be lifted. 
And the situation continues on with no end in sight. I think that uh, in Gaza right now, the blockade's been going on for more than a decade. It's not anywhere close to ending. But for many forces, mainly in Israel, the status quo is something which is bearable. Hmm. Murtaza Hussein, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Murtaza Hussein is a journalist at The Intercept. You can find him on Twitter at Maz M. Hussein. Hussein is spelled H-U-S-S-A-I-N. Coming up on the show, we are going to be taking a look back at the life and music of Pete Seeger. He would have been 100 years old this month. And we're going to be talking to my Intercept colleague, Jordan Smith, about the war over abortion rights in this country. But first, the quadrennial frenzy has broken out in the United States as we approach another election cycle and the prospect of a second term for Donald Trump. It's an incredibly crowded field of Democratic candidates for 2020. The stakes are definitely high, and the memes are flowing. One candidate's social media is doing remarkably well with some millennials. I'm talking about former Alaska Senator Mike Gravel, age 88. He is most well-known for reading Daniel Ellsberg's leaked Pentagon Papers into the public record. Somebody released this information. I don't, uh, I don't know who I read the newspapers like the rest of you and watch TV. And they say it's uh, Daniel Ellsberg, and he apparently has uh, confessed. I think he's done a service to this country. He's all alone out there. And I think he's going to have an effect in ending this war. Nowadays, if you visit Mike Gravel's official Instagram page, you'll see Shut Up Centrist written over an image of the octogenarian Mike Gravel dabbing. Yes, dabbing. All in front of a flaming background. Another meme reads... You know I had to do it to the DNC. This unlikely campaign started when some politically savvy teenagers, still in high school, reached out to the former senator to start his 2020 bid. Senator Gravel calls them the kids, and their intention is to get enough small donations to elevate Mike Gravel onto the presidential debate stage. Once there, he plans to go after the U.S. empire and what he calls pro-war Democrats. At almost 90... Mike Gravel is so old and his social media game is so fire that we had to ask him if he even knew what the kids were doing with it. Let me ask you something. Do you look at your Instagram page? Uh, No, I don't. (laughs) Do you you know what a dank meme is? A a dank what? A dank meme. (laughs) M-E-M-E. A dank meme. Is that where you put your elbow in front of your face and you have (laughs) your arms stretched out? All right. All jokes aside, Mike Gravel is actually a legend in the fight against empire and the imperial pursuits of the United States. He played a lead role in ending the military draft. He vehemently opposed the Vietnam War, the Iraq War, and he says he's actually against all U.S. military intervention. Mike Gravel is calling for reparations to black and indigenous people in this country. He wants all drugs legalized and decriminalized. He wants to denuclearize the United States and bring every single U.S. troop home. Mike Gravel says he would cut the military budget immediately by half, wage war on the military-industrial complex, and take a fierce stance against Israeli militarism and occupation. He says he would immediately lift the sanctions against Venezuela 
and would recognize or rather re-recognize Nicolas Maduro as the legitimate president of Venezuela. Mike Gravel hasn't yet met the threshold to appear in the Democratic primary debates, but he says he believes the kids may actually pull it off. Senator Mike Gravel joins me now. Senator Gravel, welcome to Intercepted. Thank you for having me. Uh, One of the main tenets of your platform that you're running on is uh, anti-imperialist, anti-interventionist foreign policy. Explain how that would work if you were to win the 2020 election, what a Mike Gravel foreign policy would look like. Well, first off, I don't think anybody who can win will, will appreciably change the nature of our foreign policy. It's imperialistic. And it's, uh, it's uh, endorsed and maintained by the military-industrial complex in Wall Street. We have to realize that it's insanity to really pit one human being against another and trying to kill each other. From my point of view, Bernie Sanders and Tulsi Gabbard, and to a degree, uh, Senator Warren, uh, th- these are my choices. Uh, the others, there's a lot of empty shirts out there that keep saying, oh, we've got to compromise and we're going to bring people together. God, we, we went through that scenario with Obama, and I had a sense of that way back when, when I was involved in the debates. Understand that this war was lost the day that George Bush invaded Iraq on a fraudulent basis. Understand that. Now, with respect to what's going on in the Congress, I'm, I'm really embarrassed. So we passed, and the media is in a frenzy right today with what has been passed. What has been passed? George Bush communicated over a year ago that he would not get out of Iraq until he left office. Do we not believe him? And I've been fighting the imperialistic policies of our country uh, for 50 years. And you also ran against Joe Biden that year in 2008, and actually you, you called him out on the, on the debate stage as well. Who on this stage exactly tonight uh, 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 worries you uh, so much? Well, I would say the top-tier ones. The top-tier ones. They made statements. Oh, Joe, I'll include you, too. You have a certain arrogance. You want to you tell the Iraqis how to run their country. i got to tell you, we should just play get out. Just plain get out. It's their country. They're asking us to leave, and we insist on staying there. Because he was a, a really a liberal interventionist with respect to Iraq. But here again, Obama set in motion, and it's carried forward right now, what I call the mother of boondoggles. The reason why I call it the mother of boondoggles is you can refurbish the nuclear capability, but you can't use the weapons. Anybody that would unload their nuclear capability on anybody else, you don't even have to retaliate, they would trigger a nuclear uh, winter and we're all going to die. This, this is insanity. And this is the leadership, the military leadership of our country and the political leadership of our country. And what it is, we're on a suicide pact. There's, there's two things that are going to destroy the planet. One is a nuclear accident or stupidity or immorality. And the other is, of course, the environmental question. Until we can muster the will of not only the United States, but the will of the world to do something about this, we're on a long trajectory of destroying the planet with our consumptive ability. Senator Gravel, you're, you're talking about climate there. What is your analysis or critique of what is being talked about as the Green New Deal, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and others pushing this legislation on Capitol Hill? Now, what the Green New Deal is, it's a commitment. 
it's a commitment, a total commitment to do something about the the uh, environmental degradation that's going on in our society. And so I applaud her leadership in, in doing this. It is important. Of the two, most things that could destroy our planet, not just our country, we're talking about destroy our planet, it's going to be the environmental problem and the nuclear problem. Talk about your plan for U.S. military spending and the U.S. military. What would a commander-in-chief, Mike Gravel, do uh, right out of the gates regarding the military and, uh, and its policies around the world? I would close all the military bases that we have abroad and uh, transfer them to the United Nations and at the same time try to bring about a, re, uh, a change in the structure of the United Nations where we do away with the veto power on the Security Council and that we would arrange that the General Assembly would be on the basis of population, not the way it is right now where everybody, every country gets one person. Two, uh, the next problem is to handle the military-industrial complex. I'm always reminded by the question that was asked of uh, Robert McNamara as he was leaving office. Secretary of Defense, he should know. So he was asked, how much could we cut the defense budget and still not be threatened uh, or, or be in danger? He said 50%. Now, I'll buy, I'll buy that. What I would do is I would call for a 50% cut in the military-industrial complex, American imperialism, and we don't need all these weapons if we don't have to have all these bases all over the world and these continuous wars that we see taking place in fighting the war on terror. What conditions would have to be present for you to authorize a U.S. war? There's no conditions. I was asked in the last, uh, when I ran in 08. Same question. Uh, other than Iraq, uh, three most uh, important uh, enemies to the United States. And, and the other candidates were mentioning the various people, Russia, China, North Korea. In point of fact, we have no important enemies. What we need to do is to begin to deal with the rest of the world as equals. And we don't do that. We spend more as a nation on defense than all the rest of the world put together. Who are we afraid of? Who are you afraid of, Brian? I'm not, and Iraq has never been a threat to us. We invaded them. I mean, it, it is unbelievable. The military-industrial complex not only controls our government lock, stock, and barrel, but they control our culture. It is absolutely ridiculous to think that there's a threat to us. There is. For terror. Now that's a whole other problem, and we bring that terror onto ourselves by the way we conduct ourselves around the world. Here, just just look at the issue of of uh, sanctions. Who the hell are we to sanction anybody? Sanctions like what we're doing right now in Venezuela. Those sanctions are going to cost tens of thousands of deaths, primarily children, I might say. And so we do this wantonly and and with with a level of arrogance. My. God, where's the sense of morality in our leadership today and in the past? How would uh, President Mike Gravel handle the situation right now in Venezuela? Would you continue to recognize Nicolas Maduro as the president, and what would relations be like? The first thing we do is we continue to recognize Maduro as the president. He is the president. People can quarrel over the elections. Well, hell, we can quarrel, quarrel over our own elections in that regard. It's up to the people. 
And so what we've got to do is to turn around and help their economy get healthy. So doing away with the sanctions would be the first step. But we're trying to destroy the economy of their country at arm's length. And we do it through sanctions. The answer to Venezuela is to help them become a viable country. Who cares whether they're socialist or not? And so when you, it's not just Venezuela. It's we go around the country thinking in our arrogance that we can displace any government, uh, any leader that doesn't kowtow to our imperialism. And that's got to end. That's got to end if for no other reason uh, of morality, at least the logic of it is very compulsive. What, what about Israel? What would your approach be to, to dealing with uh, the Israeli government, whether or not Netanyahu is in power, how, what would your approach be to Israel? Now, is, Israel is a different situation, and Netanyahu is a far right, really very bad for Israel. Now, with respect to the solution, uh, the leadership of Israel has not been all that keen on arriving at really a peaceful solution. That is a two-state solution. They feel that the only answer is for them to make life so difficult uh, for the Palestinians that they'll leave, and they force them to leave. And so then you you know you still got Gaza, and you still got what's left of the West Bank. And what, when I say what's left, with all of the settlements, there's not going to be much left to really effect a solution in that regard. We have to stop the military strength. Uh, to perpetuate the violence that exists. And there's violence on both sides, but I think right now there's a little more violence uh, perpetrated by Israel. It's stones against uh, nuclear power. How do you then change the relationship with Israel? Would you continue to give any military aid to Israel? No, no, not at all. They don't, they don't need any military. They export military capability abroad. So, so if they can export it, they have more than enough to take care of, of their security. No, Israel is militarily safe. It's economically dependent upon us. And I buy into, if you feel deeply about this and you want to boycott uh, some of uh, the industries of Israel, fine. It's a free country. You should be able to boycott. We must continue to stand firm against the profoundly biased campaign to delegitimize the state of Israel through boycotts, divestment, and sanctions. And, and I think it's appalling that uh, the Jewish interests in the Congress are, are denying us our civil rights and our ability uh, to boycott. Senator Mike Gravel, what is your big picture view of this two plus years of Mueller investigation, Russia Gate, and the allegations that uh, that Trump was directly conspiring with Vladimir Putin. I, I don't believe that for a moment. We have done more invasion of Russian elections than they've ever dreamed of with us. People lost sight of the fact that when uh, Boris Yeltsin, we not only paid for his campaign, we sent consultants over there to actually physically manage his campaign. Uh, we're American uh, political consultants uh, who have been involved in the presidential campaign in Russia for the last four and a half months. So it was really fun for us and exciting. It was one of the uh, experience of a lifetime for all of us, that's for, for sure. And uh, so we just thought we'd be here and uh, we're happy and pleased and excited to finally be able to tell the story. 
And um, so we'll just be open to your questions. And that was Yeltsin, who was then giving all the resources away to these oligarchs, and we were all party to that. And so, so when when we and of course we the CIA is always meddled in. Here we've meddled in the elections in Venezuela. Well, you you name it. This is a modus operandi of our intelligence community is to go ahead and try and screw up somebody's election. Here, th- this is always going to go on, but. By talking about it with Russia, we don't talk about what we do because what we do is considerably more than ever they've dreamed of doing. How would you describe the presidency of of Donald Trump on its own terms? How would you describe his governance, his policies, uh, the impact of his policies and ideas? The impact is, of course, it's made the United States the laughingstock of the world. With respect to his policies, the trade policies are damaging, damaging people unnecessarily. With respect to his stupidity at home, the with the immigration issue. We're going to build the wall. We have no choice. We have no choice. Build that wall. 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 What's made our country great, and he doesn't have the brain power to understand this, what's made our country great is immigration. The whole country was made up of immigrants going back to colonial days. That's what it's all about. And so for him to make that his, his, major, his major issue, to fear these people that are coming in, oh my God, I can't tell you how injurious he is to to America. Now, the flip side to that is that uh, maybe there's enough frustrations that the people will get off of business as usual, whether it's the Democrats or the crazy Republicans, and maybe they'll realize that the only answer to the, the future of society uh, is, is a governance that involves the participation of the people as lawmakers, the people. That's the solution. I, I want uh, you to tell the story briefly for uh, for people, particularly younger people who may not be familiar with this history, uh, of the action that you took when you read as much as you could into the congressional record of the Pentagon Papers. You had been approached by Daniel Ellsberg, who had tried to get some of the foreign policy luminaries of his time uh, to do this, and they wouldn't. I'm reading summaries of narratives. The narratives are based upon the documents themselves. Congressman, if you'll permit me, I'll continue to read. Explain that story for for people. When Ellsberg called me on the phone saying, would I read the Pentagon Papers as part of my filibuster against the draft, uh, I said instantly, yes. You did a five-month filibuster, uh, correct, uh, yes. against the draft in Vietnam? Because mm-hmm. what what was uh, Lyndon Johnson was able to expand the war in Vietnam because of the draft, so it became very clear that if we stopped the draft, and we did, well, uh, then uh, th- then we we got to negotiate how we're going to get the uh, papers into my possession. Well, uh, little that I know, uh, the one of the editors at the Post was uh, Ben Bagdikian. And he had sequestered a copy that in his own possession. So Dan called him and said, get the papers to Gravel. 
And so Bagdikian negotiates with me. He wants to transfer the papers to me somewhere in a woods at Rock Creek Park. I said, wait a second, Ben. I've got a little more experience than you have in this. What I suggest we transfer the papers is you take the papers, put them in your car, and at midnight, park your car right in front of the marquee of the Mayflower Hotel with the lights on, and I'll speed up. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Open my car right next to yours. Open your trunk. We transfer the papers and I'll speed off. That's exactly how we did it. Now, keep in mind, I was a freshman at this time. I was chairman of the Buildings and Grounds Committee. And so I, we wrote up a, a notice of a hearing, stuffed it, now this is 10 o'clock at night, stuffed it under the doors of the various members of the committee. And then uh, we, we got a congressman from Upper New York to come in and testify. And uh, so I convened the hearing. He said he wanted a federal building. And I said, I, uh, I'd love to give you a federal bill. I know you need one, but unfortunately, we don't have the money. And the reason we don't have the money is because we're squandering our treasure in Southeast Asia. Now, let me tell you how we got into Southeast Asia, and I proceeded to read the Pentagon Papers. And then what happened, uh, as I went on for a few hours, uh, essentially, I lost control of my emotions. Arms are being servered. Metal is crashing through human bodies because of a public policy. This government. That, that's the vision I had as I lost control. My, my, staff, my uh, chief of staff uh, leaned over to me. He couldn't be seen by the cameras because he was kneeling down next to me. He says, see, says, Senator, you lost it. <laughs> so he said, so he says, he said to me, uh, why don't you put the papers in the record? And immediately I straightened up and, and I, oh yeah, that's the answer. So here I am, I'm the only committee member there and I ask unanimous consent uh, to place all these papers into the record of the subcommittee of the building through grounds. And hearing no objections, I slammed the gavel and they're in. Well, Senator Mike Gravel, I want to thank you very much for joining us here on Intercepted. Thank you. Appreciate it. That was former Alaska Senator Mike Gravel. He is a candidate for president running to get the Democratic nomination. You can visit MikeGravel.org to see more of his campaign platform and absorb some of those dank memes from a man who would be 90 years old if he were to win the presidency.
Hello, I'm Elise Swain. You haven't heard my voice yet, but in some ways you hear from me and the production team more often than you think. You see, as a producer, I get to work behind the scenes on some of the more lighthearted and uplifting topics on this program, like the expanding wars in the Middle East, drone strikes, climate disaster, and the CIA's legacy of torture. If you're anything like me, you also enjoy starting each Wednesday morning listening to Intercepted, sipping your fourth cup of coffee while a quiet and unbearable rage fills your soul. It can be a lot to deal with, but I could make a suggestion. You can channel that rage into a monetary donation to us. Because we want to keep bringing you to that brink of guttural screaming and emotional fatigue. But we need your help. So please consider keeping this podcast going as a countering force to mainstream media. A voice against empire. A voice that says no to senseless war. Your donation will do so much to expand our journalism and keep us ad-free. We're working hard with a small team to bring you all even more focused analysis on the endless void of U.S. militarism and expanding fascism. If you have a computer with internet, you can log on to theintercept.com slash join. That's theintercept.com slash join. New at noon, more than a month after the controversial heartbeat bill passed, the State House, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp signed it into law. This new law essentially bans abortions after six weeks in Georgia. On Tuesday... Georgia became the latest state to enact one of the most restrictive abortion laws in this country. In 2019, four states have enacted similar unconstitutional legislation that essentially bans abortion as early as six weeks, before many people even know they're pregnant. Meanwhile, 10 other states are looking to do the same, according to the Guttmacher Institute. In clear violation of Roe v. Wade, these bills will be met with legal challenges. And that's the goal, to get one of these cases to the Supreme Court to overturn the 1973 decision that protects a woman's right to terminate a pregnancy. In the decades since the landmark Supreme Court rulings protecting abortion, states have passed numerous laws to restrict abortions, from compelling clinics to meet arbitrary planning codes to physician and hospital requirements. Even when state laws have been found unconstitutional, they've had the chilling effect of closing clinics, thereby not only reducing access to abortion, but also access to care. The Trump administration represents an opportunity to accelerate this vision. The Roe v. Wade is probably the one that uh, people are talking about in terms of having an effect, but uh, we'll see what happens. But it could very well end up with states at some point. You still want Roe that Wade was the to be overturned? Well, I, I do, but I, I, I haven't been nominated to the Supreme Court. Right, but I mean, you're Judge part of the Kavanaugh administration has. that campaigned, you and the president That's campaigned, right. saying right. you will find nominees to overturn Roe versus Wade. This is the first time in 46 years that the makeup on the Supreme Court has changed where there's possibly enough conservatives on there who would believe Roe v. Wade is incorrectly decided. That last voice was Alabama pro-life coalition president Eric Johnston. States have enacted a growing number of abortion restrictions and bans in 2019, according to a new report issued by the Planned Parenthood Federation of America and Guttmacher Institute. Investigative reporter for The Intercept Jordan Smith writes, quote, In a race to see who can be first to directly challenge abortion rights before the high court, their proxies in state houses across the country gleefully file legislation that can only be described as draconian. 
Up next, Smith explains how the anti-abortion movement has proliferated a set of laws, codes, and regulations across the country to criminalize women and doctors in their efforts to eliminate abortion altogether. The Supreme Court today ruled that abortion is completely a private matter to be decided by mother and doctor in the first three months of pregnancy. The right to abortion exists as long as Roe exists. But that has not stopped lawmakers from sort of whittling away at the edges of that right as much as they can. During the second three months of pregnancy at Rule, a state may regulate abortion procedures, but only to ensure the safety of the mother. So it's not technically illegal to access abortion. It just becomes practically illegal because you can't actually get the care you need. So a right without ability to exercise your right is truly meaningless. And Unfortunately, we're getting closer and closer to that line. The governor of Louisiana says that he will sign a bill that will likely close most abortion clinics in the state. A growing number of states are beginning to pass laws that would immediately ban abortion if Roe versus Wade is overturned. The Trump administration has moved to cut off funds to family planning clinics that perform abortions or provide referrals for them. There are so many restrictions on abortion access that they're pretty much too numerous to count. There are things like gestational bans, like a 20-week ban, which bans abortion after a given period of time. There are things called trap laws, which are targeted restrictions on abortion providers. So these are things that target doctors, like the need for admitting privileges or that a clinic must look like a surgical center. There are all manner of reporting requirements gathering all manner of information and have to be turned into the state at very sort of arbitrary deadlines. There are requirements that women receive in-person counseling. And a lot of these informed consent laws contain really inaccurate medical information. For example, that abortion leads to breast cancer, a debunked myth. It makes it very difficult for doctors to just do their work and provide good care. As restrictions on abortion have increased, the number of providers has shrunk. And you see this all over the United States. There are six states right now that only have one provider. And that has an effect across the system. You know, you make it harder to access care. You're not making the need for that care go away. You're delaying it. You're making it more expensive. You get people desperate and frustrated. And that's not a good place for anyone to be. On this vote, the ayes are 50. The nays are 48. The nomination of Brett M. Kavanaugh of Maryland to be an associate justice of the Supreme Court of the United States is confirmed. The sort of anti-abortion right is like sickeningly giddy because we have this reconstituted Supreme Court that has a far more right lean to it. So lawmakers in any number of states are just sort of falling over themselves to try to codify a law that would directly challenge Roe. If Roe were to fall, there would be giant swath of the country that would infect tens of millions of women and their ability to seek care. 
because it would be illegal. Texas House Bill 896 was authored by a guy named Tony Tinderholt. He's a North Texas Republican. He's put this bill in before. And basically, it is a bill that would immediately criminalize all abortion with zero exceptions. And not only that, but would also allow for women to be criminally prosecuted for accessing abortion. And it would provide for the death penalty for women and doctors who engage in abortion services. Tinderholt's bill is definitely dead on arrival. He files a bill like 896 because he truly wants to criminalize this behavior and to penalize women and doctors who access care. But there's another problem here, and that is that when you see extreme measures like this, and they're pending all over the United States right now in any number of states, bills that are similar to Tinderholds, the problem is that they have this really insidious effect of normalizing the other restrictions that are already on the books, restrictions which are completely unnecessary. So, for example, a 20-week ban doesn't seem so bad when you consider that the alternative is no access, right? But that's exactly the wrong way to look at it. You have to consider the restrictions on their face and whether they're necessary, whether they do anything to protect women, whether they do anything to protect families. And the truth of the matter is, is that they don't. Georgia lawmakers have sent a bill banning abortion as soon as a heartbeat can be detected to the desk of Republican Governor Brian Kemp. The legislation is part of a larger trend this year, with many state legislatures taking steps towards banning the procedure early in pregnancy. These so-called heartbeat bills, they essentially would ban abortion at six weeks, which you have to say right off the bat is well before most women even know they're pregnant. It plays on emotion, right? The idea that there's this heartbeat that has the same sort of meaning as it does for you and I and everybody else walking around on the street as fully formed humans. And that's just not the case. But it's very effective because it makes people feel like the embryo at that point has as much sort of agency as a grown woman. And that's neither fair nor true. So these bills would basically ban abortion at that point way before viability outside the womb, which is generally about 23 weeks. And the law now protects abortion access up until viability. So this would roll it all the way back to a point where women rarely even know they're pregnant and criminalize their behavior at that point. My current favorite is the one in Alabama, which takes it a step further and says, let's ban abortion at two weeks. Now, come on, people. You don't even know you're pregnant. That's ridiculous. The legislation is part of a broader anti-abortion strategy to prompt the U.S. Supreme Court to reconsider the right to abortion. In explaining how this wouldn't be a problematic bill, a lawyer for one of the right-to-life groups there basically demonstrated that he doesn't even understand how sexual reproduction works. He had some great quote of like, well, you know, you can just have sex and then immediately go to the clinic and find out if you're going to be pregnant. It's like, no, that's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. Another piece of this is defining a fertilized egg as a person. The the terrible sort of underbelly of, of a law like that is to say to women that you don't have agency, that you 
are not as important a person as a fertilized egg. When you talk to women who are seeking care, they're not necessarily, you know, all up on this issue. They just know that they're in a situation and they need to access health care. They are generally startled, in my experience, when they go to a clinic, for example, and see people yelling at them from the street, telling them they're baby killers, suggesting that they should just have this baby and that everything will be fine. They're literally stunned. And then when they hear they have to wait, you know, an extra 24 to 72 hours, they don't understand why. It doesn't make sense to them. Because what research tells us is that women actually have a really high degree of decision-making around abortion. And that, in fact, they do not regret it. That when they are able to access the care that they need, when they need it, they have positive feelings about their decisions. Not that they're happy that they had to do this, but because they've been able to exercise the right to make choices for themselves. The research also shows us that when women are somehow denied care or have a hard time accessing it, that they have higher levels of anxiety and depression that come out of that. Today, outside the church where Dr. George Tiller was murdered, a small memorial began to build, a reflection of the very divided passions his life provoked. A doctor specializing in women's health who also provided abortions and was also a devout Christian serving as an usher at Sunday services when he was killed. Today, the suspect in that shooting at a Planned Parenthood clinic in Colorado Springs made his first court appearance. He will face first-degree murder charges and perhaps the death penalty. Three people were killed, including a police officer. Nine were wounded. The providers that I've met, the doctors I've met, are deeply committed to helping women exercise their free agency and take control of their own lives. And... They face threats, serious threats to their well-being from protesters who put their pictures and their names on the Internet, who stalk outside their clinics. And then they also face potential ramifications from, you know, state actions because they didn't file a report on time. The pressure is tremendous. And yet they're incredibly dedicated to ensuring that women are able to make the best choices for themselves and their families. A six-week embryo is not a person. You don't need to have admitting privileges in order to have safe care. You shouldn't have to have money in order to have care. You should be able to do what you need to do for yourself and your family and make your own health care decisions in consultation with your doctor. I feel like a lot of the reporting just gives too much weight to the idea that any of this stuff is necessary when it's not and that it's anything other than just blatant attempts to control women and to conscript them into motherhood, regardless whether they want to be mothers or whether they can be mothers. That was The Intercept's investigative reporter, Jordan Smith. She covers criminal justice and reproductive rights. Her latest piece on the proliferation of abortion restrictions across the country is called Lies, Damn Lies, and Abortion. Smith spoke with our producer, Laura Flynn. This month marks the 100th anniversary of the birth of the legendary folk singer Pete Seeger. Seeger was a singular voice in the history of American music and political struggle. 
whose lifelong activism was as central to his personhood as the songs he wrote and sang. In the purest sense, Pete Seeger was an educator. He connected generations of audiences through his music, music of the U.S. South, of working people, radicals, indigenous peoples, of oppressed communities around the world. Music that would have never reached a mass audience in this country had Pete Seeger never picked up a banjo. These songs often carried messages of peace and equality, but were deeply historical, some dating back over a hundred years and having survived through oral tradition alone. But Pete Seeger paid a price for his beliefs. During the McCarthy era, he was called before the House Un-American Activities Committee, where he refused to partake in what he considered a kangaroo court. He was subsequently charged with contempt of Congress and ostracized from the mainstream of U.S. public life for nearly a decade. It was only during the time of the folk revival movement of the 1960s that Pete Seeger achieved broader redemption, emerging as an icon of not only political music, but of political liberation. In the decades that followed, Pete Seeger continued to be a leader in the anti-war, human rights, and environmental movements, right up to his death in 2014. To celebrate Pete Seeger's legacy, the Smithsonian Folkways Collection recently released a career-spanning anthology of Seeger's music. One of the producers of this collection is Jeff Place, a curator and senior archivist at the Smithsonian, who's been cataloging Pete Seeger's work for over 30 years. We spoke to Jeff Place about this collection of songs, some of them never before released until now, and about the life of Pete Seeger. One grain of sand One grain of sand One grain of sand Pete was much like the legendary character Johnny Appleseed who went around in the United States in the pioneer days and throwing apple seeds off the back of his truck and spreading forests everywhere he went. One grain of sand But his were ideas. One grain of sand. You're, you're on a seesaw and you're fighting against something really, really large. If you have enough people working together, pouring a teaspoon of sand on the other end, eventually you'll win out. One little you, one little me. Over a period of 20 years, I must have sung for about every imaginable type of person. Uh, respectable and unrespectable, too. Uh, I've sung for churches and I've sung for saloons. I've sung in street corners and for pacifists and soldiers. I always felt that, you know, a, a good song can only do good. And I wanted to sing to people no matter who they were. We shall overcome someday. Pete Seeger was born on May 3rd, 1919 in New York City, and his 
father was Charles Seeger, the eminent musicologist. He was actually one of the people who founded the field of ethnomusicology. And his mother, Constance, who was a concert violinist. Charles Seeger was uh, very political. He was a conscientious objector in World War I. He was a member of the Communist Party. And so Pete grew up in a very rich environment that was very politically charged. These people were very left-wing, and they were, you know, coming out of the Depression. Most of these people didn't think capitalism was particularly working for a lot of people. I'd ring out danger, I'd ring out a warning, I'd ring out love between my brothers and my sisters all over this land. Over the course of time, Charles was traveling around and took Pete down to Western North Carolina to Asheville, and uh, they went to a folk festival run by a man named Bascom Lunsford. I've got to the Doggett's Gap, you know, named out of the Doggett Mountain up here. I'm going to play over here at Big Sandy, and I'm going to get first prize. And if we were just get it down just right now, we're going to walk away with first prize. And it's the first time Pete ever saw a long-necked banjo, and he started hearing Appalachian music, and that music kind of stuck with him. Around 1935, my father, who was a musicologist, took me down to North Carolina, and I saw an old lady there playing banjo. She was leaning back in a rocking chair and wailing away on this thing. Having so much fun, I, I thought to myself, I never saw anybody have so much fun playing music in my life, so I wanted to learn it. Through his father introducing him to that whole festival, led Pete to go this direction with the banjo as being his main instrument for years. Hello there, Peter. Oh, howdy. What's that funny-looking guitar you're playing? Oh, this isn't a guitar. This is a banjo. Well, tell me, is a banjo something new? New? About as new as America is. You see, American Negro slaves made the first real banjos a couple hundred years ago. Out of old hollow gourds and possum skins, I guess. But they're all over the whole country. Everyone loved them. They traveled west in the covered wagons. Later on, the banjo went out of style, got countrified. Nowadays, you'll are liable to hear it played by some old farmer. And the hands on the strings will be hardened by work and worn by the weather. What do you say, Pete? Play us one of the tunes you picked up on your trip. Okay. Pete had gone to Harvard in the 30s, and he, uh, you know, he was studying journalism. But the college scene wasn't really, I don't think, the perfect place for him. I never expected to be a singer. I wanted to be a newspaper man, but... Back in 1938, uh, I couldn't find a job, and I started picking up change singing around, and I haven't really looked for an honest job since. John Hardy was a desperate little man. He carried two guns every day. Pete fell in with a lot of the younger people who were using uh, music for social justice work in New York. Well, then, Pete, what are you doing here in New York City? Well, it's a funny thing, but people in this big town are beginning to like my kind of music, too. Out there in Big Town, where the skyscrapers glisten in the sun, where the buildings make canyons in the air, American folk music got lost in the roar of the traffic. But now the people are listening again. I guess my old tunes remind them of home, of their roots in the land. Seems my country music kind of fascinates them. They all fell in together and started a commune in New York City in this house, the Almanac House. Pete was a member of the Almanac Singers, a great political folk group, you know, creating songs, you know, about like this morning's newspaper and see what's going on and like crank out two or three songs about it. From all of you good workers, good news to you 
I'll tell of how the good old Union has come in here to dwell. Which side are you on? Which side are you on? The Almanacs did a, a record called Songs for John Doe, which were all like songs that were anti-war at the beginning of World War II, which was, you know, not too many people were speaking that way, but they felt really strongly about it. In the old hoots, we weren't afraid to sing a union song or a peace song or something griping, or getting mad. And it's this kind of bite which makes folk music exciting to me, and I think a lot of people. Uh, whether it's an old love song or a lullaby or a work song, it has a kind of a teeth in it. Actually, that record got him into trouble later. What happened was that the members of the Almanac Singers were all very pro-Soviet Union, obviously, from their politics, because there was a non-aggression pact between the Soviet Union and the Nazis. They didn't want to be involved. They didn't think the U.S. should be involved. So, But once Hitler attacked the Soviet Union, they turned 180 degrees overnight. Political situation in the world suddenly changed. Woody arrived on around the 23rd or the 24th, I opened the door. I said, Woody, you're here. He says, well, I guess we won't be singing any more peace songs, will we? I says, you mean we have to support Churchill? He says, yep. I says, is this the same Churchill who in 1920 said, strangle the Bolshevik infant in its cradle? He says, yes, Churchill's flip-flopped. We got to flip-flops, says Woody, and he was right. Musicians and, and the people in Pete's orbit were starting to feel a lot of pressure from the authorities and being investigated and um, basically just for stating their own political views because there was just, you know, after the World War II, the beginnings of this total anti-communist feeling throughout the United States, and they were pointing their fingers at them, saying, you know, these are these red singers, you know, chirping for the communists. They, they sing for Moscow. The growing menace of communism arouses the House of Representatives Un-American Activities Committee. Among the well-informed witnesses testifying is J. Edgar Hoover, head of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Mr. Hoover speaks with authority on the subject. The Communist Party of the United States is a fifth column if there ever was one. There's a house in New Orleans They call a rising sun one by one, people were being brought up before the House and American Activities Committee. Are you a member of the Communist Party? Or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? It's unfortunate and tragic that I have to teach this committee the that's basic principles of Americanism. That's not the question. The question is, have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? I'm framing my answer in the only way A lot of them came up, took the Fifth Amendment. Pete took a different stance. This group of people are actually... Uh, their group, in my opinion, a group of American fascists. Their idea of America is America where everybody agrees with them. I feel myself this committee is, is harming America a lot more than most people realize. What would, what would we think if they had an un-Mexican committee, an un-French committee, an un-Japanese committee? We, we think it's ridiculous. He basically said, you know, you have no rights to ask me any of these questions. I'm an American citizen. I'm allowed to have my political views, you know. What was the question they wanted you to answer? Oh, they questioned me for about one hour. Did I sing for this person? Did I know that person? Was I a member of this? Was I a member of that? Was I ever here? Was I ever there? And I said, I've been many places, and I've got a right to be any place I want. I've got a right to sing for anybody I want. I said, I've never done anything conspiratorial. I've never joined anything conspiratorial. I've never sung anything conspiratorial, whatever that could be. And uh, 
whatever my opinions are, I got a right to them. You got a right to your opinions. I got a right to mine. Period. And so he got slapped with a contempt of Congress uh, indictment. The Fifth Amendment, in effect, is saying you have no right to ask me this question. But I wanted to say you have no right to ask any American citizen this question. The House Committee wished to pillory me because it didn't like some of the places I sang. It so happens that the title of one of the songs mentioned in the trial, Wasn't Out of Time, is one of my favorites. The song is apropos to this case. The fascists came with chains and war to prison us in hate and many a good man fall and die to say the stricken faith wasn't out of time wasn't out of time time to time the soul of man it was all about people singing with them and because they wanted these political movements to be a singing movement where the songs would help glue to hold people together in solidarity. He's leaving the apple seeds behind, like Johnny Appleseed. He's leaving behind these huge groups of people who are going to carry that on. So he started playing for school groups, you know, when he couldn't work anywhere else. What's funny about that is he actually got the last laugh because all those kids he was teaching end up growing up and becoming the whole kids in the folk revival and the kids that went into the whole social protest folk music of the 60s. A lot of them got their start listening to Pete Seeger in those situations. His concerts are educational. He's bringing in political songs. He's bringing in multiculturalism before anybody else was doing that. He's going into historical songs. And the whole thing is just an education. He's trying to get people to sing along with him and get involved. Well, let me explain the words, because they're important. In fact, the only reason I think I sing it, not the only reason, but half the reason I sing it, is the words. Jose Marti wrote it in 1893, I think. Marti was born in 1853. And at the age of 17, he was exiled from Cuba for being a leader in the Cuban Revolutionary Movement. Around 40 years old, he came back to Cuba Finally, after living most of his life in exile, including 12 years in New York City. And this is one of his last poems. He, he was a very prolific writer. He's famous as one of the greatest writers in the Spanish language. 70 books, novels, plays, polemics, and poems. And uh, about a year or two after this poem was written, he was killed in an abortive uprising. <laughs> The 
people who were felt threatened by him saw that all of a sudden he was capable of like you know creating these these groups of people it wasn't just this one guy with a banjo you know where have all the flowers gone long time passing where have all the flowers gone long time ago i was kept off tv for 17 years to show mother's brothers Pete finally ends up on network TV on, on the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour. Two hip young brothers who had a lot of really kind of cutting edge music. You'd find that people like Johnny Cash on their show. We were knee deep in the big muddy, the big fools had to push on. They wanted Pete Seeger on their show, and they had a heck of a battle. The network was like, you know, well, you can have him on, but we want to know what he's singing, you know. They had a song called Waist Deep in the Big Muddy, which was sort of a, an analogy to the Vietnam War and getting in, waiting in over your head. He sang two songs, and the time came for the show to air. He's all of a sudden playing a banjo. He's about ready to break into Big Muddy, and then it clicks, and he has a guitar in his hand, and they just cut it out entirely. And the Smothers Brothers got real upset, people got upset, and, you know, they fought about it for a while, and eventually got him back on the show and let him sing it. We're very proud to have this man on our show, not only because he, he's a great man, a fine man, and a great performer, but also because he performs rarely on television. In fact, he's only made one major television appearance in the last 17 years. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I'm happy to present on our show for the second time, Mr. Pete Seeger. We're waist deep in the big muddy The big fool says to push on Waist deep in the big muddy The big fool says to push on Waist deep in the big muddy The big fool says to push on Waist deep, neck deep Soon even a tall man will be over his head We're waist deep in the big muddy The big fool says to push on well, in the 60s, after all the political pressure on him passed, he eventually was uh, acquitted, contempt of Congress, and uh, he moved on to other things. He was involved in, like, you know, anti-nuclear stuff and anti-war stuff and civil rights movement and things like that. Over the course of his entire life, he used his music as a weapon to help try to solve these political causes. I've sung this song in 25 different countries of the world. I came to the conclusion it wasn't just a song for Alabama and Mississippi, but for any member of the human race, any place that gets a little discouraged and wonders what the future is going to bring. And this song has a kind of a calm confidence that says we can, we can, we shall overcome someday. We do we live on after we're buried in the people who, who carry on things that we, we wanted to carry on. We're just a grain of sand ourselves, each one of us. I believe it. Someday.
Jeff Place is the curator and senior archivist of the Ralph Rinsler Folklife Archive and Collection at the Smithsonian. He spoke to our producer, Jack DeZidoro. And that does it for this week's show. You can follow us on Twitter at Intercepted. If you like what we do, support our show by going to theintercept.com slash join and become a sustaining member. Intercepted is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Our lead producer is Jack Tizadoro. Our producer is Laura Flynn. Elise Swain is our associate producer and graphic designer. Our executive producer is Tal Malad. Betsy Reed is editor-in-chief of The Intercept. Rick Kwan mixed the show. Transcription for this program was done by Nuria Marquez-Martinez. Our music, as always, was composed by DJ Spooky. Until next week, I'm Jeremy Scahill. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.